Welcome to the Jimmy Neville podcast. Today's guest is Kurt Nelson. Kurt is a behavioral scientist focused on positive behavior change, motivation, influence, and habit formation. In this episode, prepare to learn why people behave and think the way they do, why money isn't always a good incentive to promote behavior change, why some people are motivated in video games but not in real life, how to help someone that does not want to be helped, why only 11% of people are able to adapt to healthier lifestyle after they were told they will die if they don't, and the importance of storytelling when trying to motivate people. This is a fun conversation and I really enjoyed Kurt's insights. Let's get right into it. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be here, Jimmy. All right, yeah, so I'm just going to start asking you questions here. Um, so the first question I want to ask you is just can you give us some background on yourself and how you got involved with behavioral science? Yeah, so uh, I am a behavioral scientist, which basically means I try to understand why people do what they do. Uh, and I do that both for work as well as a podcaster. And so uh, in my work area, what I do is we work with companies on their uh, employee engagement and motivation, really helping companies kind of dissect what it is that are motivating those people, engaging them, and try how to figure out how do we en enhance that and then uh, apply that also within uh, communications. But then on the podcast, we uh, interview um, really smart people uh, who, who know a whole lot more about behavioral science than I do, I, along with my co-host, Tim Houlihan, and we have a behavioral um, science podcast called Behavioral Grooves. And uh, again, it's just fascinating from my perspective to really try to understand, you know, why do people behave the way they do? Why do they think the way they do? Because if we look at this as, a, as what classical economists did or kind of anybody that just rationally looks at our behavior, the behavior that we elicit and the way that our, our thought pattern happens is not rational in in almost any manner. And so it's always fun to try to figure that out and to try to peel back some of those onions, as they say. Yeah, it's it's. I think one of the main reasons I'm so interested in in psychology and, and behavior is is just there's so many variables that go into it. You know, you think you figured out one aspect yeah. of it, and then there's another aspect that completely throws it off. So. It's always interesting because I talk with clients about this from from a work perspective and they will say, well, you know, what did you do at the other companies? And it's like uh, what I did at the other companies probably won't work at your company. And, and even if they're very similar, because, again, as you just said, we're so complex and the nuances of our behavior, the nuances of why we think the way we do get influenced by so many different factors and those factors change. And so even if you have a really successful intervention that you're doing in one organization and the other organization says, well, just do that here, you're going, well, it's probably, it may work a little bit, but it won't have the same impact. And you have to understand all of those variables, which makes it um, hard and difficult and crazy, but it also, you know, is why I have a job. So there, I kind of enjoy that part of it. So yeah, it seems very dynamic, you know, it's something that always needs a little updating and moving around bits and pieces here and there. And I, I think also that's what makes it so fun and interesting to me. So, it is, it is. Yeah. 
Um, I just want to give a disclaimer here before I start asking some of these questions um, that I, I used chat GPT <laughs> to come up with some of them. <laughs> um, I don't. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't want to, you know, not all these came from my mind and I don't want to take credit for something that didn't come from my mind. Um, so so what I did when I was doing research and, and you know, learning about you um, is I, I came up with with some questions. And then I started asking chat GPT like, hey, these are the questions I have. This is the person I'm interviewing. Like, what kind of questions could I ask him? And they gave me some of these and they're very interesting questions. So I figured I'd go with it and try to. <laughs> this <you> know, <laughs> This is a first, Jimmy. I am I'm going to be really interested. Now, I I have to say I have used um ChatGPT and then I realized that the the researchers they were they were sending back to me were made up and fictitious. So, oh, wow. as long as you're not wow. referencing any kind of uh research <laughs> that is there and I'm going, I've never heard of that research. Well, it might be because it's just made up. So, but there you go. But all right, shoot away. Let's Very let's do this. All right, yeah. So, the first stuff I want to talk about, the first few things I want to talk about is motivation. And so what are some of the most common misconceptions okay. about motivation? Yeah, so I think a lot of people think motivation is just a if if I lay out like if you if you want to somebody to do something all you have to do is just give them more money or to set some kind of incentive or reward out there. And incentive and rewards are really powerful. That is a undeniable element. And it we can we see it work all the time in the organizations that I work with. We see it work all the time in kind of just individual behavior and all of those types of things. But this idea that, oh, well, I want you to work an extra Saturday um, every day for the for the next, you know, three months and I'll just pay you for that. Well, I'm not really going to necessarily always be motivated to do that or I'm going to not be motivated to go above and beyond and make sure that you're um, doing whatever X is that I want you to do. And you have to understand that we are divided into both we have extrinsic motivators and we also have intrinsic motivator drives. And, you know, it, it's not an either or either. That's the other thing that people often mistake. It's like, oh, well, that's an extrinsic reward. And so that's the only reason I'm doing this. Or this is I'm only doing this for intrinsic reasons. It's usually a continuum. It's usually some combination of both. There's usually some overlap in how those work. And so when we think about motivation, particularly if we're thinking about trying to motivate others, and this is a, a whole different factor than kind of motivating yourself, although some of the underlying research is the same. But, you know, the big misconceptions are, hey, I can just pay people more and they're going to do it because it's just an extrinsic reward component. No, you have to take the intrinsic in, into consideration as well. And that, you know, it isn't just an either or on this as, as well. So that's a, that's a big one that, that I always um, bring up, at least in some of the conversations that we have with, you know, people trying to motivate others at work. So, yeah, yeah, it is hard to discern or, or it's hard to um, like what I was thinking of when you were talking about that is when when I was considering getting a um, PhD, my my uh, my teacher was like, he sat me down and he was talking to me about it. And like a lot of the stuff he was saying was very motivating, but I just didn't have like the intrinsic motivation to do it. Like he was giving me a lot of external um, motivation. Like, hey, if you do this, this is what will happen. But I just didn't have it within myself to, to, to want to do that at the time. So it's. 
it's really interesting because like when I look back and getting my PhD, I mean, I did it almost. And again, this is there's always this overlap, right? I, I did it mostly from an intrinsic perspective because I just wanted to. I felt like it was something I'd always wanted. There was a an element of self-identity, which comes in. It's another aspect of motivation is um, you're mo- more motivated uh to do things that align with the self-schema, the self-image that you have of yourself or who you desire yourself to be. Um, and so that was there. And, and I knew there were going to be pieces of of having it that were going to be beneficial to me in, in outside ways. Um, I did not realize, though, uh, the benefit that it did have from that perspective. So it opened up uh, a number of doors for me that that weren't open before and getting into sea level suites and a variety of other kind of factors, but also the perception on how people um, viewed the work. So I, I, I always tell the story. There is a, a program that I used to do. I used to do some team development things. And so one of these was uh, a program, basically a couple hour session where I'd get up, present in front of people. I have them do some activities, have them come back and we kind of debrief and talk through this. And I had um, completed pretty much all of my PhD program, but I just hadn't gone through commencements. And that was in July. Um, I did a program with a client it went well it was great but you know it was just kind of one of those things and then i commenced in august and then i did the exact same program different client but the exact same program um in september and the difference because of the phd behind my name and this might be be me me projecting out right so it could be just me projecting oh i have this phd and therefore uh, it's changed but i think there was a there's a demonstrable um difference not not um minor in the way that people paid attention the way that they were engaging with the information i had a bigger sense of credibility for them and therefore it changed the dynamics and it might have been me too just knowing that i had a phd behind me and i changed my way which is always again part of the interesting facets around motivation and the way that we behave is how much of it is internal how much of it is external and what is the interplay between those two yeah it makes me think about this youtube video i was watching recently where this guy was giving a talk about how to you know, build like a, a social media following and what, like this guy has, you know, millions of dollars and you sold many companies and, you know, very credible person. And he was saying that if someone was standing up here, given the same exact talk, same exact presentation that I was giving, but they only had a thousand followers, would you care? Like, would you listen to it? And the answer is probably yeah. no, I, I wouldn't watch the video because I want to watch the video for someone who has, who has the experience behind their name, who, who, can share their, you know, experience, how they did it, not just how they think you should do it. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because when we think about that, there's a couple aspects that are going into that. There's a social proof element, which again, as humans, we are kind of hardwired to look to see what others are doing and to mimic that behavior, particularly if it is around areas where we're not familiar. So in other words, if I'm looking to understand what restaurant to go to in a new um, 
a new city I'm visiting, right? I will go and I will look at Yelp to see the star ratings because I don't know. And and that's a, a social way, a social proof way to demonstrate, oh, we are good. Or if I'm out there and I see a whole lot, a line of people outside of a, of a restaurant, I'm probably going to be more interested in that. Same thing as you were talking about the YouTube person, you know, a uh, uh, hundred thousand followers versus a thousand or versus a million. Um, that is a element of social proof and it drives a lot of our behavior. And if you can tap into that, you can you can demonstrate that one thing um, on that. So uh, we interviewed uh, Robert Cialdini, who wrote a really one of the most kind of groundbreaking books in in behavioral science called um, uh, Influence, and he's all about persuasion. And uh, one of the things he talked about is social proof. One of the things he he said is you know unless you actually have it, it's kind of, you don't want to lie about it, right? But he said one thing that you can do if you don't have a, a hundred thousand followers, what you can show is, hey, last month I had two hundred and fifty followers. You know, two weeks ago I had five hundred followers. Now I have a thousand followers. So all of a sudden you can see that trend, and you can see how fast that is rising. And by doing that, that actually kind of taps into that same thing. It's like, oh. Who is this person? Why are they getting all this attention recently? And why why are they growing so fast? And so that's another way of tapping into some of that social proof. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't thought about it like that, but that that does make sense. It um, when you're talking about using Yelp, it reminds me of um, a, a trick that I have discovered. Whenever I need to look something up or get a review on something, is just put Reddit at the end of anything I'm looking up, and then instead of getting articles. <laughs> about that, that people trying to sell you on something you get real people telling you their experience about that that thing so i've discovered like good oh. massage therapists that way like good restaurants in a particular city that way like it's a pretty cool little trick i'm gonna have to try that now Jim. thank you <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> all right so you actually answered a few of the questions that i was going to ask you some of them about intrinsic and extrinsic <laughs> motivation and um I think the next one that I think would be interesting to hear your your uh, feedback on is how does one's personal values play a role in motivation? Oh, yeah. So this is an interesting piece as we think about, uh, again, it goes back to kind of that self-identity that I talked a little bit about before. Um, but our personal values are, are, are really important. Um, now, saying that, we can get into some of the real elements around some of the the nuances of this and how do you overcome those personal values and how do you you know there are people who get people others to do things that are totally against their personal values and there's ways of of kind of manipulating people to do that but we'll leave that off on the side um, and just focusing around personal values so the the way that I believe about something right of who I am what I stand for all of those types of things are a, a mental self-image that I have of myself. And when I do things that are in alignment with that mental self-image, they feel good. There's an intrinsic value to that. It is reinforcing this positive image that I have of myself. On the contrary, when I am doing behaviors or acting in ways that are contrary to that image, and then what I have is this kind of sense of angst. I get, a, you know, we feel that internally. Now, our brains often will um, discount that 
and they will rationalize it away and we will do a whole number of different things. But if you listen to your gut, that's a really good way to kind of understand, am I doing things that align with who I want to be? And if you're constantly feeling that kind of pull, for instance, you know, if I consider, I'll I'll use an example of myself. So on my bio, I used to have this, uh, I used to say, oh, I love to go, you know, I love to ski and and read and I'm an, uh, you know, go outdoors and canoeing and, and a canoeist and all this other stuff. And I started to really think about that and I'm going, I go canoeing once a year, maybe. We go up to the Boundary Waters. We go with my my in-laws. Now, I love going, right? I love going out there and canoeing and being out there. But if I was a canoeist, I would think that I would probably be doing that more than once a year and only when we're going on on one trip, right? It would be like, oh, it's a Saturday. Let's go take the canoe out and we'll go and we'll we'll explore something. And so I, all of a sudden I realized I'm going, there's, there's a disconnect there. There's, there's that what I stated I was and what my actual behaviors were. And so what I did is I didn't change and go, oh, I'm going to start canoeing more. I actually just said, oh, I guess I'm really not a canoeist, right? So I shouldn't probably put that on my bio. Um, and that's a that's a really, you know, light kind of example here. But I think it, it shows the point. The point is, is that we can do two things when we come into those situations. One is that we can, we can actually um, change our behaviors to more align with who uh, we want to be and who we believe and who, what our values are, or it's a it's a little point to say, are those really my values? And if they're not, then maybe I need to reassess that self-image I have, the beliefs that I have, and various different things. And it's one of the ways that we can actually get people to change, um, particularly long-held beliefs, is to get them to look at their own behaviors and do that. Although I will put a caveat on that, we will often get into um, very deep um, over over rationalizing on those types of things. If you're trying to push somebody that way, um, they, they go through a thing called reactance and you actually push back further um, on those on those behaviors and you'll figure out ways of, of rationalizing them away. So yeah, how would how do you think a growth mindset contributes to motivation and success? Yeah, so um, you know, growth mindset is a, a just a is we think about how we view the world, and Angela Duckworth did um, great research on this, uh, and it, it's contra- contrasted to a fixed mindset, and so a lot of work they did with kids, right, is um, um, this element of uh, do you have a growth mindset as a kid? In other words, that I'm going to go out there, I'm going to be experimenting, I'm going to be checking things out, or I'm going to be, um, uh, you know, testing my metal. In other words, and and any feedback, even if I fail, that's good because I learn from that and I can be better next time, and so I will grow. That's the growth part of it. A fixed mindset is often um, attributed again when they looked at the research with with kids is that. Oh, um, I do well in math, but I don't do well in this other thing. So I'm going to just take a lot of math courses and I'm not going to do anything else because what I don't want to have happen is I don't want to fail because I want to make sure that I maintain that image of, of who I am. And so the other idea of that is that I am who I am and I don't have this ability to change. And so as a, 
as, as adults, we kind of have attributed that as well. And so the idea of a growth mindset is really positive if you want to try to understand a, a way for you to overcome some of the challenges and barriers and all these different things in your life. It, 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 that means that failure isn't um, a failure. Failure is actually a way of looking and learning and growing from that. And so that's a really key kind of thing. And the work around the mindset piece is that we can actually, you know, think about how our mindsets and kind of talk to ourselves into believing some of that. It's not as easy as that, but that's a, a quick way. If I can say, you know, if I reframe a failure as a learning opportunity, then that becomes a growth opportunity for me. If I reframe a challenge as this is something that means a lot to me, that's why I'm doing it, that's a growth opportunity. If I reframe, um, you, you know, that this is something that I've never tried before and it is scary and there's uncertainty around it, but this is, if I reframe that as this is an opportunity as opposed to something to be scared about, that's a growth mindset. Yeah, I'm having a hard time because everything you're saying is making me think of something interesting that I want to talk to you about. I'm having a hard time keeping it all <laughs> alive in my head. Um, hey, you know, we got, we got time. We can yeah. talk about whatever we want. So, yeah. So what I was thinking when you were talking about growth mindset is, um, I, I, I have a growth mindset like big time. Um, and I, I look back on my life and I think, you know, I, I skateboard a lot when I was a kid. Uh, well, for, before skateboarding, like I, I played baseball and my dad would just take me every day and throw pitches at me and I'd get better. So I could see that, you know, the more you practice, the more you get better. And then with skateboarding, yeah. the same thing. The more that I was falling and failing, the better I was getting. And the more risks I would take, yeah. the better I would get. And then um, when I was in my late teenage years, I started playing a, a video game. And I think my growth mindset kind of took control there too, playing World of Warcraft where um, I really wanted to grow in the game, you know, um, I was very motivated to play this game and to build the best character I could, but it was like, it was never ending. And yeah. Yeah. So a question that I want to ask you is why do you think, cause, cause at this point in my life, I don't play video games anymore, but I, I still look at my life like a video game, you know, like it's, it's like I'm building all the time. I'm building something. And why do you think it is that like when I was 16, I was motivated to do it on the video game, but not in real life where it, where it really matters. Um, and, and I think a lot of people share that same thing. Like they, they're motivated to play these games and to build the best character they can, but they're not motivated at all to do it in their life. It's, a, it's an interesting question, right? And uh, you can go back, you can go to you know, developmental theories in this from the perspective of as a 16-year-old, your brain hasn't developed in all the ways that it will. Um, it can be about your cohort and the group that you're hanging around at that time. What are your friends doing? Um, it can be about, particularly at, as a teenager, the rebellious stage that we're in because we're trying to find out who we are as separate entities from our parents and our family. And, you know, the expectation is to put things into your life and make sure your life is good and you can be a rebellious because, no, I'm playing these video games. So it could be any number of those combinations as you're going through it. 
Uh, but it, what's interesting is that you talked about how you learned this as an early at an early age, right? With your dad taking you out and, and doing pitches around baseball and, and skateboarding and continually practicing skateboarding in various different pieces. And one of the interesting pieces of the research that I always find fascinating, and it changed the way that when I was, when my kids are now 17 and 13, and I kind of the way that you talk to them, one of the things that they found is that people, like if a kid got a good grade, um, one of the ways that you can talk is like, hey, that's great. You are super smart. All right. Or you could say, hey, that's great. You must have worked really hard at getting that A. And that slight difference in how we talk about it changes how kids process that information and it changes if it's going to be more likely to have a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. So in the first one, hey, you know, you got an A, you must be really smart that means it's fixed. I'm smart. Therefore, I got the A. And if I get a B, that means I'm not smart, right? So that means I fail. So am I going to put myself out there in situations where I can fail? And am I going to, you know, kind of exert myself and really challenge myself? No. And my view set is that, oh, if I fail, it's because of some innate failure in myself versus if, hey, you worked really hard to get that A. That means if I get a B, I just didn't work hard enough, right? And so therefore, what I'm now looking at is saying, oh, I have to go ahead and next time, I, I didn't work hard enough to get the A this time, so next time I have to work a little bit harder. And if I do that, then I will grow, I will get that A. And you can see where that leads, right? And so this idea, again, of the practice that you did with your dad, you can see, hey, I, I swung and I missed, I swung and I missed, I swung and I missed, oh, I swung and I hit. Okay, now I'm starting to see that I keep trying, I can fail over and over and over again. And baseball is a fantastic sport, wouldn't it? Because you think about, like, how many times the, you know, the, the best baseball players in the world strike out a whole lot more than they ever, you know, get a hit. Um, you know, they get, they get out, I should say, maybe not strike out, but they get out a whole lot more than they ever get a hit. And, you know, it's not about being perfect all of the time, but it's about being better than you were the day before. And that's the important piece. So I think I yeah. went way roundabout from your initial question there. So apologize for that, Jimmy. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I, I really enjoyed that answer. Um, because, I mean, it's it's so true. It's so much, it's so much more empowering knowing like it's like smartness is something that was given to me at birth that I can't really control. But the level of work I put into something is something that I have complete control over. So if you tell me that by working really hard, I can get what I want, um, that's empowering, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I love this topic. What do you think are some practical <laughs> strategies for increasing motivation? Oh, um, so there's 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 a lot. So one is it, we already talked about, right? Uh, understanding yourself, understanding your values and various different things and trying to find things um, that align with that. So even in work, like if you are at, in a work and it's a boring job in your consideration and you want to try to keep yourself a little bit more motivated, well, then you can um, identify what are some of the things that might align with who I am, right? It's doing a good job. Am I, am I a person who likes to make sure that I always give 100% effort? So therefore, I can kind of um, reframe some of the things that I, the way I think about my job from that way. can also set little milestones and little goals. Goals have been shown to be highly, highly motivational. Um, Gary Latham and John Locke 
two of the founding kind of uh, researchers in kind of goal theory talk about that, this idea that goals are, are highly motivational. We see something, we try to go for it, and we try to get to it. Um, this is this uh, element, too, when you talk about gaming, right? And um, I use this idea of, of kind of challenges and various different things. If I play a video game and I get, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me at the beginning, right? But then I get better at it, I improve, and wow, I'm really good. I, I've mastered level one. Okay, and now I get to level two, and level two is no different or, or not any more challenging than level one was. I can get through level two really quick. And then the level three is if it's the same challenge as, as level one and two where I get through that, pretty soon I'm not going to be motivated, right? It's it's no longer fun because there's no that, – that challenge, that kind of uh, bettering yourself is is no longer there. And so that's part of it as well. So, you know, the, we're – we are driven by challenges. We are driven by kind of having that goal out there and that challenge and different things. I will put a caveat on goals is that, um, at least from goal theory, what they talk about is this idea that, you know, when we set ourselves a goal or we get a goal at the beginning, our motivation is relatively pretty high. It's like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to strive. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get that A on the test or I'm going to, you know, make sure that I exercise every day for the next month. And then, um, you do pretty good at the beginning, but then the problem of the middle comes in. And uh, uh, this problem of the middle is that motivation typically wanes somewhere in between the start of a trying to achieve your goal and getting near the end. We know that motivation um, near the end actually increases, and they, they've known this for gosh, almost uh, 70, 80 years than they did it. You know, B.F. Skinner was doing research on this back with rats and mazes and timing them. Like uh, they sped up um, at the end of a maze when they knew they were getting close to the end. Um, the actual speed that they were running increased. And, and, and not to compare humans to rats, but we're the same way. We, uh, if we can see that we're getting closer to the end, if, you're ever, if you've ever run a race, Right. If you've ever run any kind of uh, uh, whether it be a bike race, a running race, any kind of race, you know that if uh, you can't if you all of a sudden see the end and that finish line, uh, your motivation increases and you actually probably speed up. And so there's a lot to be said for for doing that. Your initial question is like, again, though, how do you increase motivation? There's lots of other little tricks. So um you know, oftentimes it's not about motivation so much. It's about setting up the environment in the right way. And so how do you set up the environment such that the activity that you want to do is easy to do and or the activity that you don't want to do is harder to do? And so um, I often talk to people about setting up the environment as a way um, to actually change the behavior that people have as opposed to trying to increase the motivation because motivation is hard or it's costly um, and those are different kinds of things to there to do that so we could go on and on there's lots of other like, little tricks and one of my favorite katie milkman has um temptation bundling is, is what the she coined this is and so for instance she said she didn't like to go to the gym but what she really liked is to listen to books on tape. Um, and so what she did is she basically made what's called a Ulysses contract, um, where um, if I don't do something or limiting my options, in other words, to 
only have this. And so what she would do is she actually put the book on tape that she was listening to at the gym and kept it at the gym in her locker. So the only way that she could listen to this book on tape or follow this movie or whatever it would be is to go to the gym and go work out, right? And so she was doing that because the other motivation was there. So it's temptation bundling. It's bundling something you don't like to do with something that you do like to do. And so that can motivate you to do that unpleasant activity um, more often, more likely to have happen than if you didn't do that. So that's just another one on top of that. Yeah. An example personally that I, I can think of is recently, after I get done working all day, I usually do a workout or do something outside. And then I generally have a pretty hard time like getting back on my computer and doing stuff that I need to do. Mm. And so what I've been doing is I love drinking kombucha. So what I do is when I come back to my computer at night, I bring a kombucha with me. And that's like my reward for like sitting back down at the computer. (laughs) And um, it's it's been working out pretty well so far. And, and and that is actually so again what you're doing is you're incentivizing yourself right you're incentivizing yourself to say i will have this kombucha because i am at the computer and um those are really good what we get what we see oftentimes and particularly when people are trying to drive change in their life particularly around um health and weight and other pieces is uh they will build in incentives but those incentives are actually counter productive to what they're trying to achieve which is what you don't want to have happen um and so you've got to be wary of that but i love this this idea of yeah tie something together with what you need to do uh with something that you like to do so yeah so i have one more question about motivation and then we can get into habits i think we're okay. kind of we're getting into that right now but I've always heard, so I'm in recovery from substance abuse. I've been in recovery for over seven years, and I used to work at a treatment center. I worked there for about three years while I was going to college. And something you hear very okay. often in, in that environment and in the recovery environment is that you can't help people until they want to be helped. If someone doesn't yeah. want to change, there's nothing you could do for them. And I think there's been times where I have personally used this as an excuse not to help somebody. Like, oh, they're not, they're not ready. They don't Mm -hmm. want it yet. When really there's something I could be doing to support them or be there for them. And I was wondering how you think of this. Do you think there's a way to help someone that doesn't want to change? I worked with people. I worked with kids that were from age 18 to 24 that had to go to treatment and they really didn't want to stop using drugs. They were still happy with their life. You know, they hadn't experienced like consequences yet. And we had one kid, um, who he liked getting on trains and you know just he liked living a homeless lifestyle he was 18 years old he liked going and talking to old army vets at homeless camps he liked eating out of the trash and i would i just try to talk to him i was like do you do you really want like do you want this and he's like yes like he's a very smart he's like yes this i enjoy this like this is what i want and it's just like what do you, you know that's just an example but i'm just wondering how you think of this yeah, it's it's a difficult um, topic, right? This idea, and particularly when you're talking about substance abuse or addiction and various different pieces. And I'm not an expert in that area, um, so but I will I will bring my own kind of um, experience into this and kind of thinking again. Uh, oftentimes, what we hear within um, organizations, right, is like, 
well, we can't motivate them to do something if they're not already motivated to do it, and we need to hire right and all those things. And I think there's 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 truth in that, right? It's very difficult to get people to want to change if they don't see a reason to change. Um, and this idea that you're going to be able to have a magic bullet that all of a sudden something you say or provide or do is going to all of a sudden get that kid to go, oh yeah, what am I thinking? And riding around in trains and eating out of dark, you know, dumpsters and all that. that oh, that, that was stupid. How, how silly of me to do that. Um, but what I do think is that I think particularly when it comes to trying to get people to rethink some of their decisions and to, to uh, get them to have uh, a, a different kind of perspective on things is that there is value in us having those conversations with people. And um, one of the ways that I think about this uh, that I kind of highly recommend for people we we've had a number of people on the on the podcast who've talked about conspiracy theories and you know people who believe the earth is flat and all these kind of things and and trying to really change some strongly held beliefs that again they don't want to give up there's they they have a community they feel like they're in the know there's a whole bunch of incentives for them to maintain this belief in the way that we want them to say oh no we really need to take a look at reality and one of the best ways of doing that is is um, what Kwame, Kwame Christian calls having a compassionate um, um, conversation. And basically with the idea of not trying to change their view, not trying to actually um, you know, really get them to do anything outside of having a compassionate conversation with them to understand. And when you can get them to start asking like answering those questions themselves that's when that change starts to happen and so what you're doing in those situations is acting as because we're, we are and i say this all the time too is our brain likes to trick us right our, our brain is designed from an evolutionary perspective way 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 back and the things that allowed us to survive in a small community a tribe uh in you know sub-sahara you know africa uh, are very different than what allow us to survive today, but our brain doesn't know that. Our brain is designed and wired to to kind of live in that life. And so this idea of of you know thinking about how this community, this tribe, what it is that they find enjoyable, and so just asking them questions um, with real compassion, with trying to understand what is it, why do you so so why do you like living you know traveling and and in, on a train you know what is it about that you know what does that feel like how are you does it get cold you know what are what are those questions that are really coming from a really good place not a place of trying to to change them but a good place of trying to do that and the research shows that that is you know it's really hard to change somebody if they don't want to change but the way of doing it isn't saying you need to change because then we get reactants but it's really you know talking with them and then if they do point out something that's contradictory what i talked about before from this idea of who's this person that you want to be and what are you trying to do if they say something kind of pointing that out to them going 
I thought you said you 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 know like to have you know comforts and different things. That, that seems different, right? Um, help me understand that difference, and then they start to realize it for themselves. And when you can do that, that's going to be really positive. Yeah, I, I really like that answer because it, it, it is when so, when you feel like someone's trying to control you, you de- immediately get defensive, or even if you feel like someone's trying to ask you questions from a place of manipulating you, you get even more defensive. Yeah. You know, it's like. It, you can see it from a mile away. It's, it's those salespeople who, yeah, it's those salespeople, right, who are doing that. So would you like to, you know, wouldn't you like to have, you know, more freedom for your time? And you're going, yeah, that's a yes question. But you're going to, you're trying to get me to buy your product at right. the end. And I know that. And so I am not, you're not asking from a good place. You're not asking like, oh, yeah, don't you think that having more freedom in your life is a wonderful thing? Yeah, of course I do. Everybody does, right? That's a... That's these generic, but you're trying to get me to, to, to a point. And if we feel like we're being manipulated and we're pretty good BS detectors as humans, um, we do, we, we react in this way that actually doubles down on our initial belief or our, our reactance to them. So it's less likely that we are going to actually change. And so that is another piece. And I know I've had this when I learned about reactance and, you know, you're trying to, if you have a conversation with somebody who's different political view from you, a different view on, you know, any kind of contentious religion, whatever it would be, um, you know, if you're trying to change them, it can actually force them to be have a hold a stronger belief, particularly in those moments where it's kind of a semi-held belief. And if you ask the, the wrong question in the wrong way, you could actually lead them down that rabbit hole a little bit more, uh, as opposed to kind of bringing them to the light. If if that's what you're trying to do, I don't. It's again a bad analogy because who knows that rabbit hole might be the right thing for them, but. Um, those are just some of the things that we need to take into consideration. Yeah. Awesome. So moving, moving into like the habits section here, there was a, a quote that I read from your blog. I think it was a few years back where it says, in a large study with patients with a severe cardiovascular trauma, patients were informed by their doctors that they needed to alter their eating, exercise, stress, and alcohol habits or face continuing issues or possibly, possibly even death. After two years, only 11% of the patients fully complied with their doctor's recommendations. And I just want to hear why you think habits are so hard to break. <laughs> so uh, that's a that's a really interesting, it was an article way, way, way back. It was uh, Change or Die was the title of it. They then subsequently made a book out of it. I uh, can't remember the author. I'll have to uh, try to remember that and, and say it. But um, very interesting because, again, as we were talking about this right if you think about any motivational kind of cue like avoiding death would probably be really high on most people's you know uh, list right yeah all right i can do something and avoid death that's probably high on my motivational level right um but these people really were given like this directive it was like they had a massive cardiac kind of uh like uh you know some sort of heart condition they usually went on surgery, but the doctors are saying, look, the surgery just kind of, you know, alleviated the symptoms. You have to change your lifestyle. And again, as it said, only 11% of people actually did. And when they looked at those 11% of people, what they found out was that the, the people that were able to change, change because they set the, 
their environment and the um, situations that they put themselves in change. So we are driven um, and our behaviors are influenced by the context which we find ourselves in to a much greater degree than we often believe or even think possible, even when we're trying to think about this. So if I am trying to lose weight and I go down to my, my cupboard and I open it up and there's a bunch of, you know, Oreo cookies and, you know, um, you know, other kinds of unhealthy snacks there. Um, I, I won't have as much as I think I have really good willpower. It's going to be much harder for me to resist eating those extra cookies and then kind of just going, oh, that's okay. It's only a couple cookies and different things and various different aspects. But that lends itself into, um, you know, this element of falling back into the bad patterns. And so I talked about this before is if you can to change a behavior, it's often easier to change the environment. So, you know, move the cookies or don't buy the cookies in the first place. That is probably the best way of being able to do that. Um, and when we think about habits and routines, habits and routines are just habits, uh, again, from the, the, the clinical kind of way we think about this, are habits are just um, patterns of behavior that happen um, once we are triggered by some cue that act in a mostly unconscious way. So this idea that uh, when I go in, so for me, it's like I go in um, at night and I go in and I brush my teeth and then I go and I grab my floss, right? I've grabbed the floss because I brush my teeth and I've, I've paired those up and that's just my habit of doing that. Um, routines, are, on the other hand, are a little bit more, require some more brain thought and, and a little bit more purpose around this. So it's again, it's patterns of behavior, um, either triggered by a cue or by some sort of schedule that you've set yourself on, but that they are not um, driven by some subconscious component that we actually have to think about them or have some prompt in order to get us to do this. So um, from that perspective, it is this idea that um, I have a timer that comes on every night at 1030 that I will go in and I will, um, you know, work with my daughter to get her to bed and make sure that her phone is off and all of those kind of things. Um, but it's a prompt. It, I get a timer that comes on. I have to think about it. It's not something that is just at subconscious in, in my mind. Um, and so those are the difference between habits and routines. And when you talk about kind of changing behavior, we know that if we can um, build those positive habits and break the bad habits, usually, again, thinking about context and environment, whether that be physical or social environment, and then building the routines and setting those things up. And having tools that can help us achieve that is really powerful. So a long-winded answer, Jimmy. Sorry, you're going to get a bunch of those from me. So No, no I love the long-winded answers. They're great. Um, the, the next question I was going to ask you was, was about what role does environment play in, in habits, but we just talked about that. And, um, well, I, I, let me go and I'll go a little deeper on that because I think there's a, because when we think about environment, oftentimes when I say it, people go, oh, so the physical, like in, around my desk, right? How do I have my desk set up? Do I have it set up so that it's neat and, and orderly or is it a mess? And mine's kind of somewhere in between. 
And I know all the research says that a neat orderly desk is I'm going to be more productive. I'm going to have a whole bunch of things just because of the way that our brains process that information and all sorts of different aspects about that. So that's the physical environment. One of the best ones I always talk about is, you know, there was a... Uh, I didn't, this wasn't somebody that I interviewed, but somebody interviewed this guy who was trying to learn how to play guitar. And he said, I'm going to come home every night. He, so he set up this routine that he was going to do. I'm going to come home every night and I'm going to practice for an hour before I do anything else. But what happened? He came home, couch is right there. It's like a long day at work. I'm going to just sit on the couch. So he sits on the couch and what's right in front of him? Oh, the TV remote. Okay, I'll just turn on the TV here real quick. And then what ends up happening? Oh, this is a good, you know, Netflix. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm binge watching and all of a sudden two or three hours are gone by and it's now it's too late. I, I don't have time to practice, you know, my guitar. So, in, you know, he had tried to set that up. So, but instead of trying to just do that through willpower and different pieces, what he ended up doing is move the TV into a back bedroom. Um, and instead of taking that guitar that was in the in his bedroom, brought it out, sitting it next to the couch. So what happens? He comes home from work, sits down on the couch. No TV there, but my guitar's right there. What do I do? Pick up the guitar. And I play the guitar for an hour. And so he learned, he practiced, he got better at guitar because he set the environment up to be successful for him. And if you think about that and how you structure things that you know you want to do, um, you can do that. Make again that the the desired behavior easy and the and the not so desired behavior, the bad behavior hard. And that's one of those things. The bigger piece that I talk about though is the social environment that we're in. And you probably heard about you know you are the uh, you are the five people that are closest to you and various different pieces along that line. And they kind of sound glib, but there's there's truth in that, right? The people that we surround ourselves with influence our behavior and again i'll just use a simple example you go out um your friends call you up hey we want to go out on friday night you know if your friends are going out to the bar um and you're trying to maybe not drink or to lose weight or to be more active you know it's really going to be hard to to just to, to you know not do that if your friends call you up and say, hey, let's go and play hockey or let's go and, you know, take a, a, a walk around the lake. All right. Well, that's going to make that desired behavior a lot easier for you. And oftentimes, you know, when we're trying to make behavior change, we don't take into account the, the undue influence that others have on us. And so sometimes it's really hard because, you know, what do our friends do? We go out to the bar. We go and we do this. This is the this is how we connect. This is what we do. Um, and to change that, uh, you need to sometimes find a different set of friends. Not saying get rid of those friends, but you know maybe not see them as much and find a new set of cohorts. Again, who do you hang around at work? Are they people that are performing, or are they goofing off? Are they you know? So all of those types of things as you think about that. So, sorry, expanding upon the environmental thing just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I think changing friends for me when I was getting into recovery was one of the most important things. I mean, there's no way I could still hang around the people that I was hanging around with before because they would they'd be able to pull me back into it much quicker than than I would be able to pull them out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was huge. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and another thing that I was thinking of, so I read Atomic Habits a couple years ago. 
and I heard James Clear recently on a podcast talking about, and this really stuck with me, like that if you don't have time to limit the scope. So if I was planning on doing like an hour workout and I have to work late and only have 30 minutes, you know, most not, for me, a hundred percent of the time I would say, Oh, I don't have time to do a workout. You know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll have to miss it today, but no, I could still go in there and, and do something for 20, 25 minutes, you know? So I've, yeah. I wrote that down when I heard that and I've, I've really let that stick with me that I can, all I need to do is reduce the scope if I don't have time. It, I think that's a, it's a fantastic component when we're thinking about trying to maintain habits and to drive behavior change. Consistency is the uh, wherewithal to kind of achieving your goals. So when we talk, so I do a lot of work with 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 individuals and organizations around goals and goal setting. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, we often think, all right, to write the book, to, you know, exercise, get in shape, to do whatever it is. Oh, if I just, you know, writing the book, if I, just, I need to wait till inspiration and do this. And James Clear talks about this all the time. No, you need to just sit down and put time to paper. And if it's crap, it's crap. But, you know, there'll be some some gem that comes out of that 30 minutes. And if you only have five, still do it for five. Don't try to say, oh, I don't have time to do it. As you said, limit that scope. A great, great insight. So, yeah. So. One question, one last question here for about habits. Um, I guess this kind of falls in with habits, but why do you think some people enjoy personal challenges and some do not? Oh, this is this is probably way beyond my pay grade. Um, but uh, I think there's there's you know we know we know there's personality differences within people. Um, and again, just like you talk, we talked about growth and fixed mindsets before might have something to do with with that um there's probably a lot to just do with you know how people um view the world is the world as as a challenge for me something that i'm going to get um value out of or is it just work if it's just if i view it as just work um and i gotta do you know i gotta uh, you know whatever it would be i don't know what a good example would be at this point but just you know whatever that would be kind of again that mindset that we talked about before well i could view this as a challenge and it kind of shows that i can i can do this or it's a challenge to me and so i want to see how good i can get can i master this can i not if i don't care about mastering it if i don't have that element that it is going to bring some sort of value to who or what i am or what that outcome is going to be then eh, i like i i you know I, and again, I'll use a bad example of my daughter, right? It's like trying to get her to, to you know, wake up on time or anything that would, it would be, right? It doesn't, if it doesn't matter to her, we talked about this before, you can't necessarily make something important to somebody. They have to have, find it important for themselves. But unless you're setting a personal challenge that is a meaningful challenge to you, then then it just becomes a, a something that, you know, you're required to do and God, some of those can be really painful. So, yeah, for sure. Um, I had a I had a friend who works in IT, and I was telling him, I was saying, if you could, you know, take a few months to learn this programming language, it would really set you apart. You know, like you you could probably make like double what you're making right now. 
And he yeah. was just like, I have he's like, I don't have any desire to learn anything new. And it just killed. <laughs> I, I just couldn't. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine being that kind of person, you know, like that just has no desire to learn anything new. Like his job is what he does to go make money so he could go spend time with his family. And, you know, that's, that's his, that's his choice. That's what he likes to do. But I don't, I just, I get so much like pleasure and enjoyment out of life, like, you know, learning new things and pushing myself to the next level and stuff. So. And again, Jimmy, that comes from, uh, like I said, personality, who you are, what is the, what are the things that drive you at an intrinsic level? And every individual has a different component around that, which is, again, we talked about the very beginning around this, you know, different people and the context and how complex motivation, behavior change, all of this is when we're dealing with humans because we're complex beings in a complex network of social and, and physical environments that uh, impact everything from what we think and do and say and the way we respond to those types of things. And so every individual is going to have their own little twist on things. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's hard to to kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes when they're so different than you. And yet that's what we try to do if we can really try to understand them. So. Okay, so getting into the last section here, business. I have another quote from your blog. Um, it says organization, and, and I think we've kind of touched on a lot of this stuff. So if it's if it's repetitive, or if we've already talked about exactly, we could always move on to the next question. But uh, the quote is: Organizations should look for ways to actively frame their communications to drive emotional engagement and increase their employees' intrinsic motivation. Mm. And I'm just wondering, how, how do you think this can be achieved? Yeah. So a lot of the work that we do is in communications within, um, imp- within organizations. So um, internal communications, as they call it. And too often what we see is that organizations, um, particularly as it relates to technical or like a specific program, I do a lot of work around incentives and reward programs and various different things is they're just saying, oh, we're just going to put this out there. We're just, you know, this is information. We're just going to, it's dry. It's boring. It has no emotional component outside of what people are going to place on it themselves. So the, the idea there is that communications again if we think about how we evolved we're we're story creatures we love narratives we love kind of putting things into an uh, an arc of of how things happen and the the way that we can bring some of that emotion in is to talk about these things within organizations in more of a storytelling manner, more of a narrative. And people go, well, how do you talk about an incentive plan for my salespeople in a story? Well, you tell the story of a salesperson who is bringing, you know, who was not motivated before, but now with this new, and then they put, they thought about what can I do with this, you know, this extra, you know, $10,000 bonus that I can have. Oh, my kid you know um is getting ready to go to college and this will be great for there but i'm also able to take my wife out on you know get her that special gift that she's always wanted whatever that would be and bringing that in and kind of setting up this whole narrative around that and then you know so what did that person do while they looked and they read the you know so you set things up around things um it's also the words that you use and so there's some really interesting work again by gary latham who talked about before on on the motivation side 
side and motivation theory, he's also done work on priming um, in various different pieces. And he did this really interesting research in a company where they changed basically 12 words in an email that the president sent out to the entire organization. So half of the people got the original email, half of them got words that had 12 what he called achievement words. So things like thrive or striving and uh, accomplishment and various different words that kind of evoke an achievement kind of mentality. And when they looked at those people at the end of a week and their performance, and this performance was measured through kind of a, a, a system, they were, they were telecommunications people, so they, they time everything like how long did you spend uh, on the phone with this person did the issue get resolved the first time all of those types of things and when they looked at the people that got the email that had the 12 achievement words versus those that got the plain words those achievement word people improved and don't quote me on this but it was like 15 percent more productive and 30 percent better at kind of resolution kind of getting those things so again you go 12 words and basically what it was 150 word email that went out you know, you change that and you change how people respond because you're activating different neural networks in your brain. This is the way priming is a whole another thing that we didn't even get into uh, that that kind of are activated by different cues in our environment. And thus it's like, oh, that means I'm like this. And then particularly as it relates to individuals about what they uh, that activates that goal kind of uh self-identity that I have and you can tap into some of those so again emotional pieces in the words that you use another way of thinking about emotion in workplace and communication is what are the visuals you're using what's the format that you're using are you using an email or are you actually leaving a voicemail instead to everybody or doing some sort of webinar where people get to see you and get to see things or just the visuals that you're using inside of your um your documents, whether it be a PowerPoint or even in a Word document, can you add in some visuals? Again, understanding that as humans, we're, we're striving for that connection. We're striving for some emotional component. And so by doing that, building off of those kinds of things, how you frame things, we've talked about reframing a lot, but I can frame something as a gain or I can frame something as a loss. And how I do that changes how people respond to it. So all of those factors come into play got me thinking about uh jonathan Haidt and the righteous mind now i'm, I'm currently reading mm -hmm. that book and um but I, I have a question for you that on that in a in a bit um so one one question i have so when you were just talking about that what what i'm hearing is by doing these things you're helping employees do what they already want to do. You're not trying to talk them into doing anything that's not going to be beneficial for them or help them. And so I'm curious, like the ethical considerations businesses take into account for, for behavioral science, like when, when using influence to, to influence the behavior. It's yeah, that's a, it's a huge element that we always think about. So Tim and I on our, on the podcast, the behavioral grooves that we do, it's a, it's a, conversation that comes up a lot with people who are putting these programs and various different pieces together is uh, you know are we are we unduly influencing people outside of their kind of conscious component again priming is a the key 
uh, component of that. This idea that by just putting 12 words in or changing the image that you have on a sheet of paper, uh, you can change people's performance and behavior. And again, there's an element of if people, if you're doing this in a manner that is not, you know, putting people in harm or doing anything that uh, would be seen as potentially harmful or unethical to consumers or others that you're dealing with and you're tapping into the the desires and and goals that they already have um then you can you know you can at least argue that you're doing this for the right reasons and i think that's really important now there's nuances and there's craziness and different pieces of this and then you get into the whole factor of unintended consequences from some of these and you're dealing with a whole variety of different things but the ethics behind this is really an important piece and always something that you have that i consider and that anybody that's trying to apply behavioral science inside of an organization or even in your own personal life you got to be you got to take that into consideration uh yeah great great answer um so you explained how companies can use uh, behavioral science to influence employees do you think it's any different when you're looking at how to create products and services for customers that are more engaging oh yeah i mean it's one of the things so we actually have just um started to put together we created a uh a personal journal so for individuals so um if you want to try to achieve some goals or to um, be better at kind of achieving, uh, increasing your motivation, uh, trying to drive some behavior change for yourself. Um, and what we did is we basically took behavioral science and said, hey, we, you know, daily journals are a way that we can help people that has been designed to, to kind of help people have a better life and different pieces of this and achieve some of their goals. And what we said is, well, but they're not necessarily tapping into all of the behavioral science pieces. So we took a 13 week, a quarter basically, and said, we're going to create this daily journal. And that daily journal is going to tap into some of these things. So we have elements in there from from self-prompts, so identifying, you know, what is my, how do I want to show up today? So again, kind of some of that priming pieces to um, identifying goals, keystone goals, as we call them. So what are, how do we set the right goals for ourselves? And then how do you break those goals down into weekly components and, and daily components? And what do I need to do on a daily basis? And what are the prompts that are going to get me to do it? Again, as we talked about routines, and so tapping into that, then bringing in some of the motivational things like progress. There's a whole element on progress principle and we we see progress and that's motivational for us so how do we track our progress on this and then there's elements of bringing gratitude in and how do you you know if you can bring gratitude into your life on a daily basis we start to rewire our brains to be looking for things to be grateful for and changes our mindset and increases our motivation to achieve it anyway going on and on and on but the your, your question is about how to bring behavioral science into products and you can and it's a really powerful thing and again if you think about this that again is a big ethical area, right? So this idea of um, looking at something and you can create a product and Niriel um, had a book probably 10, 15 years ago now called Hooked, where he talks about this. And particularly as it, as it relates to um, the internet and apps and various different pieces, 
you can build things in that we know from behavioral science that are going to get people hooked and not necessarily in ways that you want them to be hooked, like playing on games and having those constant kind of, um, you, you know, little, little element surprise. Again, we're, we're rewarded when rewards are um, not when they're kind of lottery based and they're unexpected, they drive a higher dopamine release than when they're not. And so getting little like notices that you've just achieved something or some element of that uh, increases the pleasure that we have, but also increases the likelihood that we're going to stay kind of hooked into this moment. And so you can design those in and you can design that in to kind of get people to stay on your app or on your social media piece longer than maybe they want to. Um, And so again, that gets into ethical components of, well, yeah, how do you design something so that it's enjoyable and engaging, but isn't, you know, manipulative and, and uh, addicting. So, yeah, it makes me think about there's this place that I had never been before close to where I live. It's like a cookie place. Um, can't think of the name of it. But anyways, every week they have different cookies. So one week they'll have like five flavors. The next week they'll yeah. have another five. The next week they'll have another five. I was thinking how, like, what a cool marketing technique that is. Cause it, you, you're curious, you know, you want to know each week, like, Hey, what cookies they have. And then when you look, you're basically already there, you know? So <laughs> we're, we're variety seeking beings, right? I mean, we are, we want novelty in our life to a certain degree. This is again, part of that complexity that we talked about, right? We, we are also status quo seeking creatures. Like we like the status quo but all right, change up the pattern. Give me something novel that I'm I'm pretty safe at, right? So new cookies every week is, is something that oh well it's a it's kind of status quo because it's new every week, but it also provides some novelty for me. So it's a perfect example of this. I need to go out and search. Um, I need to do some of these facets in order to to kind of get there. And you build that in, um, and it's it's it it works. Yeah, so I told you I was going to ask you a question about the righteous mind. Um, I, w- I was reading one of your blogs, and, and you talk about Daniel Kahneman as well, and, and you know how he has the two systems for decision making that kind of line up with Jonathan Haidt's idea of the elephant and the rider. You know, the intuitive versus the reasoning brain. Yep. And I'm just curious, how do you think about those two brains and how they work together? Is one? I mean, obviously they're both important, but what, what's your perception about about that? Yeah, so just for um, listeners, um, Danny Kahneman talks about it's a du- it's a dual processing brain kind of um, element, and he wasn't the first one to 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 think about this. There's been lots of this research going on for many different years, but we know psychologically that um, we make intuitive, very quick, very um, fast decisions in some instances. In other instances, we start thinking about things in our prefrontal lobe, that area that is the thinking part of our brain um, responds uh, more. And so we kind of analyze things. So the, the best example I always give is like, if I asked you what um, two plus two is, right? You immediately know what that answer is. It's been kind of, it's it's four, right? We go, we, I, you get that. If I asked you, you know, what is 78 times 132? you don't have an intuitive answer for that, right? You have to, that in order to answer that question, you have to go into what system two, or as, uh, you know, 
Jonathan talks about that's the rider, right? That's the the thinking person on top of an elephant. But, you know, if the elephant, what I love about um, Jonathan Haidt's example on this is as as rational as we want to be and we think we're in control, we're riding this elephant, you know what? If that elephant really gets scared or wants to go somewhere, like there's something that is calling him, we do not have the the physical strength to take that that elephant where we want it to go and that elephant will take us wherever we go so that emotional side of uh, in Jonathan Haidt's um, example is what takes us where we're going and the fact of the matter is is we often think we're in control when we're not and so um, system one and system two one isn't um, inherently better than the other this fast thinking is of it's a it's amazing it's part of um why we are able to do a lot of the things we can do we wouldn't be able to drive we wouldn't be able to do a lot of different things if we didn't have that right if i hear a honk and i don't immediately respond to that uh, the, you know, if I have to go, oh, a honk, okay, that could mean that this car is coming at me too fast. It could mean, you know, if you have to think about that uh, and not respond immediately, then I'm more likely to get in an accident, right? And so we are wired in a way that we need both. Um, where we fall short, and this is um, some work we've done, you know, workshops and various different things on decision making, is when we use um, our intuitive brain on things that we shouldn't be using our intuitive brain on, that we should be more in control and we need to be thinking about those. And oftentimes even on the corollary that oftentimes we overthink things, we get into analysis paralysis when we should just be making decisions and and kind of moving forward. And so there's ways that we can put prompts in or do different elements to a in kind of in those moments where we know that we might, uh, if we act in a in a system one thinking type way, that fast intuitive, and we need to slow down, we can put things in to slow us down, right? And we can add friction to the system so that we slow down and we we think. One of my favorites is just this idea that um, you know uh, it's called the two two seconds seven seconds. So um, don't make a decision before you've you've taken two. I'm sorry, two breaths, seven breaths. Um, don't make a decision before you've taken two breaths, but make it before you've taken seven. So this idea that, um, and those are, again, if you hear a horn, you want to, you want to jump out of the way. If you're crossing the street and you hear a horn, you know, move, right? Don't, don't take two breaths and try to think about what it is. But if you're making a decision, and, and again, it's not, not rocket science, right? It's like what, you know, we have choice between three restaurants. All right. Uh, all right. Take two breaths and think about it. All right. And then, you know, make the decision before seven. So that's just one of those kind of, and there's a bunch of those different types of hacks and, and little tricks that you can do around that. I've never heard the two seven second breath. I, that's, that's really cool. I'll have to uh, remember that one. Yeah. All right. So kind of wrapping up here, just want to ask you what your plans are for the immediate future. Do you have goals or plans that, um, anything oh, out of the ordinary? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lots, right? Running a business, doing all sorts of different things, having a podcast, it's always fun. Uh, the thing that I'm really focused in on, I talked about that journal, it's called Brain Shift. And so we just launched it in December. Uh, and so it's it's doing really well right now. And we're building out um, 
So that's volume one. We'll have, um, and that's about, uh, actually, it's about habits and goals, right? So it's uh, as part of that, we put in every week, there's a behavioral science principle and some of the insights around that. And then that gets kind of teed up throughout the week too, to kind of apply that principle into your, into your daily life. And so then we'll have a volume two one, which is about decision-making. So some of those two second, you know, two breaths, seven breaths, will be coming into some of those and we'll have all that. And so we're building out a whole cadre of different um, tools and resources that people can use if they want to drive behavior change in their life. They have some goals that they want to achieve. These are some tools that are easy to use. They're, they're fun. They, they bring in, we talked about novelty. They're not like the same prompts week after week after week. We change them up different kind of decision elements that go into all of that. And so really built upon that behavioral science. And we want to take that to the next level. So, you know, we work with corporations. We're taking the insights that we've done from 20 plus years of working inside of organizations around engagement and motivation. We have the podcast. We're talking to Nobel laureates. So we talked with Danny Kahneman. We talked with Richard Thaler. We've talked with a, a wide variety of other really, really bright people um, around this behavioral science and taking some of those insights and applying it in into these tools to help people uh, live a better life and to find their groove. So that's the the piece for me that I'm like focused in on for the next year, probably be really trying to, to say, hey, what else can we do? How can we improve this? What can we make better? And, you know, um, just talking with people about, you know, leveraging that and how they can use it and where can we, how can we help them? So. Awesome. That's exciting. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll post in the notes, um, all the all the links that you've mentioned. Do you want to tell oh, everybody where else where else to find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on LinkedIn, Kurt W. Nelson. Uh, you can search for me out there. Uh, Twitter at uh, Motivation Guru. I have a couple different uh, Twitter feeds, so that's usually the best. And then uh, you can just if if behavioral sciences of interest and uh, you're you want to hear actually a, a much better person talking about it. Um, uh, my co-host is, is much brighter than I am on this stuff. And so uh, Tim and I have a podcast called Behavioral Grooves. You can just search that. It's on any any of the Twitter feed or the, the feeds that are out there for any of the podcast kind of places. So Awesome. Yeah, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And I appreciate you so much coming out. Um, well, I guess you didn't come out, but, but you can, <laughs> you came on. No, but this so, has been fun, yeah. Jimmy. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. This has been, this has been great and, um, great luck with your podcast. It's a great format. So, um, looking forward to seeing many, many more of these. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you.